Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. There we go. John 19, verse 25. The Bible says, Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, You are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose Peter ear cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter then denied it again and immediately A rooster crowed. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium, and it was early. And they themselves did not enter into the praetorium, so that they would not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. Father, we pray for your word this morning, for the anointing upon it, Lord. Let it go and drive it into our hearts, that we would not be those who hear the word, but also be doers. Open up our hearts, O Lord. We ask in your name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Have you ever had one of those days when you feel like you should have stayed in bed? I found these true statements that people put on their insurance claims. See what you think. The accident happened because I had one eye on the semi in front, one eye on the pedestrian, and one eye on the car behind. (laughs) The next claimant had collided with a cow. The question and answers on the claim form were, question, what warning was given by you? Answer, horn. Question, what warning was given by the other party? Answer, moo. This confused applicant said, I collided with a stationary truck coming the other way. I love this one. A pedestrian hit me and went under my car. I hate when that happens. This one sounds like an X-file. An invisible car came out of nowhere, struck my car, and vanished. This poor guy sounds very bewildered. He said, Coming home, I drove into the wrong house and collided with a tree I don't have. This guy wrote, I had to swerve a number of times before I hit him. Or how about the person wrote, I had been driving for 40 years when I fell asleep and had an accident. Who can blame him? That's a long time to be driving without sleep. I wonder what to say about the next person who wrote, I saw a slow-moving, sad-faced old gentleman as he bounced off the roof of my car. (laughs) Almost done. This poor guy said, I told the police I was not injured, but on removing my hat, I found I had a fractured skull. And finally, this person was just brutally honest and wrote, The indirect cause of the accident was a little guy in a small car with a big mouth. 
Welcome back to our study in the Gospel of John. Last week we left Peter probably also wishing that he would have stayed home that day. Verse 25, please. Now Simon Peter was still standing and warming himself, so they said to him, You are not one of his disciples as well, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the slaves of the high priest who was related to the one whose ear Peter cut off said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? I told you last week that I've always liked Peter. Maybe it's because I see so much of myself in him. Like him, I do love the Lord and I do want to walk pleasing to God. But sometimes I just get in the way of myself and wonder if I am ever going to be the disciple that I truly want to be. This is the paradox of our humanity. We are both noble and ignoble, both rational and irrational, both moral and immoral, both creative and destructive, both loving and selfish, both godlike and brutish. I know no more eloquent statement of the human paradox is the one given a good many years ago by a man named Richard Holloway. He writes, this is my dilemma. I am dust and ashes, frail and wayward. A set of predetermined behavioral responses. I'm riddled with fears, beset with needs. I'm the quintessence of dust, and into dust I shall return. But there is something else in me. Dust I may be, but trouble dust. Dust that dreams. Dust that has strange premonitions of a transfiguration, of a glory in store. A destiny prepared. An inheritance that will one day be my own. So my life is stretched out in a painful dialectic between ashes and glory, between weakness and transfiguration. I'm a riddle to myself, an exasperating enigma. I am this strange duality of dust and glory. Peter's like that. He is both heavenly and fleshly, and I can readily identify with that. Really, he is just like every one of us this morning. He is not a stained glass saint with a halo hovering around his head. I don't picture Peter wearing an Armani suit or even a white flowing robe. No, Peter was a fisherman. I envision him in a pair of old jeans, a flannel shirt, a copy of Field and Stream rolled up in his back pocket, and one of those hats that have all the hooks hanging off of it. And speaking of hooks, have you ever noticed that ladies' earrings look like fishing lures? That has nothing to do with the sermon. It's just a hang-up that I have. Sunday's like free therapy for me, so thank you. Anyway, as Peter was warming himself, another approach was made. Now, there is difficulty here arising from the fact that the Gospels do not agree on the way in which the question was asked. John does not specify, but simply says, they spoke to him. However, Matthew and Mark mention a girl, while Luke speaks only of a man. Well, obviously, this is just another one of those Bible contradictions, right? No. Our difficulty arises from the fact that we unconsciously think that in each case, one person asks the question, and that was that. A moment's reflection, however, shows that that would almost definitely not have been the case. Think about it. 
with a group of servants talking informally around a fire in the courtyard. When one asked whether Peter was a disciple or not, it is almost certain that others would take up that question, especially if there was any hesitation about his answer. But the last question there in verse 26 may have been the most condemning. Making a bad situation far worse for Peter, this individual was a relative of Malchus, the one whose Peter, the one whose Peter had cut off his ear earlier that evening in Gethsemane. Why did he do that? Well, Peter had tried to fight a spiritual battle with a carnal weapon. And if you put confidence in the flesh, you can be sure you're going to respond in the flesh. Peter rushed ahead and trusted the arm of the flesh, and it was an unmitigated disaster. It reminds me of another one of God's servants. This is Exodus 2.11. Now it came about in those days when Moses had grown up that he went out to his brethren and looked on their hard labors, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that, and then when no one else was around, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. And he went out the next day, and behold, now two Hebrews were fighting with each other. And he said to the offender, Why are you striking your companion? But he said, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Are you intending to kill me the same way you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid, and he said, Surely this matter has become known. It said, Moses looked this way and that way. But like Peter, he forgot to look up. He then hid the guy in the sand. But instead of an ear lying on the ground, Moses must have forgotten and left a big toe sticking up out of the sand. But it is the same mindset. It is trying to serve God in the power of our flesh. Take it from someone who has tried it countless times. It just doesn't work. But now he challenged Peter with the most specific and dangerous accusation of all. Did I not see you in the garden with him? True enough, being a disciple of Jesus was not a crime as of yet. That would come. But assaulting a man with a sword, well, that was a crime. So panic-stricken, Peter emphatically denied for the third time that he knew who Christ was. And this leads us directly into verse 27. Peter then denied it again, and immediately a rooster crowed. We are told in Matthew that at this very point, Peter's resistance broke down, and he began to curse and swear. Now, this does not mean that Peter let loose a volley of four-letter words, but rather that he put himself under a curse in order to emphasize his statement. If you think about it, in a sense, he was on trial before those around the campfire, and so he put himself under an oath to convince his accusers that he was telling the truth. The Bible says that as soon as that last denial left his mouth, immediately a rooster crowed. I wonder what went through his mind upon hearing that rooster. I'm sure that in some ways it probably really surprised him. After all, Jesus said that he was the rock. 
And so Peter was the original Rocky. But he denied Christ three times, even though he was confident that this would never happen. So he was Rocky and cocky. So you have cocky one, cocky two, and cocky three, just like the movies. But at that very moment, we had visitors too. Two things happened that drew the two dramas together concerning Jesus and Peter. Immediately after Peter's third denial, a rooster crowed. But we are told in Luke that at that very moment, the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Now we are left to imagine what that look must have been. Personally, this is my opinion. Knowing the character of the Lord Jesus, I think it was a combined look of both sadness and pity. I don't think it was a smug or a condemning look. After all, Jesus not only knew that Peter was going to fail, but even with that knowledge, told Peter that after he was to be restored, he was to be the very one he would use to strengthen the other disciples. In other words, Jesus knows all about our failures. He knows about failures in the future that we ourselves are yet ignorant of. And yet this morning still wants us to know that his love and purposes for us are still right on track. So the crowing of that rooster was an assurance to Peter that Jesus was totally in control of the whole situation, even though he was bound and being harassed by the authorities. By controlling that one bird, Jesus affirmed his sovereignty. So what is beautiful here is Jesus told Peter that he would fail. And surprise, Jesus was right. But guess what? If you are a Christian, Jesus also says that you're going to make it. And so we can be just as assured that one day Jude 24 is going to occur, which says... Now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless and with great joy. He did it for Peter, and he's going to do it for us also. Now the crowing of that rooster would have been a very penetrating sound because history tells us that due to the mess that they made, roosters were outlawed in the city of Jerusalem during the holy festivals. Thus it was appropriate that Jesus would say, You'll hear the rooster crow, Peter, because, like them, you're going to mess up. But this morning, I suggest to you there's a bright side as well. For the crow of the rooster also signifies the dawning of a new day. Therefore, it's as if Jesus said, yes, Peter, you have blown it. Yes, you have cursed and sworn and denied me not once, but thrice. You have petered out. But a new day is beginning. We are then told, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him, before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. Overwhelmed with shame, guilt, and grief at that last denial, the Bible says Peter went out and wept bitterly. I think it's good to be reminded that left to ourselves, We are not all that great. So the great news is, the Bible says, weeping may endure for a night, but joy 
comes in the morning. I think it's also worthwhile to contrast Peter and Judas. You see, Peter wept over his sins and repented, while Judas admitted his sins but never repented. Judas experienced remorse, not repentance. When Judas went out of the upper room, the Bible says it was night. But when Peter went out to weep bitterly, the Bible says it was the dawning of a new day. It is the contrast between godly sorrow that leads to true repentance and the sorrow of death of the world that leads to death. Jesus is saying to Peter, I'm not through with you, Peter, not by a long shot. In fact, following his resurrection, Jesus sought out Peter individually and specifically. He's going to deal with Peter in chapter 21 and commission him back into the ministry. But what I find sad is for some people, Peter's three denials is all that they really know about Peter. Did you ever wonder why a rooftop weather vane is typically formed in the shape of an ornamental rooster? Pope Nicholas I ordered that every church in Europe should have a rooster on its steeple as a reminder of Jesus' prophecy that the rooster would not crow until Peter denied Christ three different times. The idea was that in the same way that the wind blows and turns the weather vane, Peter was also blown around by circumstances. Yeah, Peter fell that day, but that's not the Peter that I know from the rest of Scripture. Read his two epistles and tell me what you think. I'd love to be half the man as the Apostle Peter. On the day of Pentecost, it was Peter who stood up and preached the word, and 3,000 souls were saved. And Peter would become the most prominent apostle in all of Jerusalem, all because Jesus didn't give up on him. Brethren, Paul would later write, if any of you are overtaken in a fault, you who are spiritual should restore such a one. Notice Paul didn't say remind, rebuke, or reveal. He said restore. That's what we should do for our brothers and sisters when they fail. We shouldn't be sin sniffers or the gospel Gestapo. We ought to always be looking for ways and opportunities to see men and women continue on in their faith, to be restored, to not be held back because of any kind of failure. And not only that, sometimes the Lord will use our failures to be able to help us as we can now sympathize with others' weaknesses. Paul would also later say, Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Why does Paul say that he is the worst? The late John Stott wrote, Paul is not saying he did a careful study of every sinner in human history and found out that he came in first place. The truth is, rather, when we are convicted by the Holy Spirit, an immediate result is we give up all such comparisons. Paul was so vividly aware of his own sins that he could not conceive that anybody could be any worse. Stott finishes by saying, This is the language of every sinner whose conscience has been awakened and disturbed by the Holy Spirit. I even read this week that there is a real neurological evidence for the power of spiritual reflection to make us aware of our sins and how we view others. 
Christians actually use a different part of their brain to self-evaluate than non-Christians. In a study conducted in Beijing, researchers compared which part of the brain people use to evaluate both themselves and others. The study is summarized in an article with a snappy title, Neural Consequences of Religious Belief on Self-Referential Processing. In it, non-religious subjects use one part of their brain, the ventral medial prefrontal cortex, to evaluate themselves, but another part, the dorsal medial prefrontal cortex, to evaluate others. But Christians use the same part of the brain to evaluate themselves that they use to evaluate others. Researchers hypothesize this is because they were actually using a kind of Jesus reference point for their evaluation. And they were really thinking, what does God think of me? And then that would determine how the Christian would think about others. UCLA researcher Jeff Swartz said that this study is one of the most scientific, important papers published in the last decade. That means this morning, prayer, meditation, and confession actually have the power to rewire the brain in a way that can make us less self-referential and more aware of how God sees us. Not only that, God never wastes our pain. So the agony that you may be suffering right now, even if it feels overwhelming, will not go to waste. If you allow it, this experience can be the means by which God brings you some of his greatest blessings. George Matheson expressed this well in his book, Thoughts for Life's Journey. He writes, My soul, reject not the place of prostration. It has ever been the roving room for royalty. Ask the great ones of the past what has been the spot of their prosperity. They will say it was the cold ground on which I was lying. Ask Abraham. He will point you to the sacrifice on Moriah. Ask Joseph. He will direct you to his dungeon. Ask Moses. He will date his fortune from his danger in the Nile. Ask Ruth. She will bid you build her monument in her field of toil. Ask David. He will tell you that his songs came from the night. Ask Job, and he will remind you that God answered him out of the whirlwind. Ask Peter. He will extol his submersion in the sea. Ask John. He will give the honor to Patmos. Ask Paul. He will ascribe his inspiration to the light which struck him blind. And one more, the Son of Man. Ask him whence came his rule over the whole world. He will answer, from the cold ground on which I was lying in Gethsemane, I received my scepter there. Verse 28, please. Then they brought Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium, and it was early, and they themselves did not enter the praetorium, so that they would not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. Why was Jesus rejected? He was rejected because he was hated. And he was hated because he revealed the leader's sins. Now, none of this makes sense where the trial of Pilate is concerned, as Pilate does not seem to hate Jesus. If anything, it seems like he respected him. He even acquitted him, pronouncing him innocent on three separate occasions. Yet, he eventually is going to turn Jesus over to be crucified. That Jewish trial exposes the true nature of, 
of the unredeemed hearts of men and women. Because he, we tend to look upon our natures as we are basically good. But that is not the way that God views us. And a trial like this brings that out. Jeremiah says of man, the heart is deceitful above all things and is beyond cure. This does not mean that according to biblical teaching that we could all be as evil as we could possibly be. But given enough time and opportunity, we could all be a whole lot worse. It does mean that the roots of even the most heinous crimes ever perpetrated in history lie within our bosoms. And that being placed in a situation similar to that of those others who did such things, we have nothing within our unredeemed flesh to hinder us from doing likewise. Now, what the priests and the scribes and the elders did on that occasion of Christ's trial is really no different from what men and women are doing even today. Just like that, Christ is being proclaimed as the unique Son of God. But millions reject this while refusing to hear his defense. And there is a defense. It is presented regularly in countless Christian churches, on radio, internet, television, in book form, and in other forms of communication. But they will not hear it. They will not go to church. They will not read Christian literature. They turn the radio and the television off or pretend they are someone else on Facebook. What shall we say of such people? Are they honest? Are they wise? Hardly. And this is the reason. For if Jesus is who he claimed to be, that fact is a matter of life and death and eternity for all people. But this whole trial is just a travesty of justice. And we are given all the details of the trial in John's gospel, but listen as I read to you some of the rules they are breaking that we find from the other gospels. One, criminal cases must be tried and completed during daylight hours. This was under the cover of darkness. Two, criminal cases could not be tried during the Passover season, which this was. Three, only a verdict of non-guilty could cause a case to be finished on the same day it was begun. You see, according to the Jewish law, if the accused was declared innocent, even after just one vote, that was the end of the entire matter. But in a capital case, if 37 or more members voted for death, they were required to go home and sleep for a night before voting again the next day. Why? Well, they were supposed to pray and think of ways to acquit the accused, and so feelings of mercy could arise. Since it was night here, though, they wanted to quickly decide, and then, in order to fulfill the letter of the law, they could at least wait a couple hours before sentencing. Four. Verdicts of the Sanhedrin were valid only if they were met in the Hall of Hewn Stones in the Temple Precinct. Five, all evidence had to be guaranteed by at least two witnesses. Six, these witnesses must be examined separately and had to have had no contact with each other. Seven, in all trials, the process began by the laying out before the court of all the evidence for the innocence of the accused. Now, I'm sure there are probably more rules that they broke. That just gives you an idea 
of how adamant they were to kill Jesus. And now we come to the, one of the most funniest, sad things in all of the Bible. These guys are so deluded in their self-righteousness that even though they are breaking laws right and left, they still want to appear religious by not wanting to be defiled by entering a Gentile's household. So, these guys have no problem whatsoever with lying, bribery, and murder. But they don't want to get their feet dirty by going into an unclean home. I mean, you have to have some boundaries and standards, am I right? You see, it was the rule that the dwelling places of Gentiles were unclean. And so any Jew who entered that dwelling would immediately contract defilement, and that defilement would last seven days. And this would effectively prevent them from observing the feast. It is a curious commentary on human nature that they were scrupulous about contracting a defilement that would prevent them from keeping the feast on the due date, but they were not at all concerned about taking a part an act of judicial murder. D.A. Carson nails this when he writes, Illustrative of the twisted devotion of religious legalists, the Jewish leaders expected to please God through their legalism expressed in physical separation from a Gentile house, while at the same time illegally murdering God's son. They fastidiously avoided any superficial ceremonial defilement, but cared nothing about the profound moral defilement they incurred from rejecting and condemning the Holy Son of God to death. The Jews take elaborate precautions to avoid ritual contamination in order to eat the Passover, while at the very same time they are busy manipulating the judicial system to secure the death of him who alone is the true Passover. When I read that, I thought, such is the heart of religion devoid from Christ. So as we finish up today, what we have learned is eventually failure is going to come to each one of us in some way. But we have seen here the tender and compassionate heart of the great shepherd who always just wants us to repent and then be restored. And once repented of, all of our past failures, as far as God is concerned, have been wiped clean and forgotten. I tell you this because history tells us that wherever Peter went, there were those who would follow him around crowing like roosters to remind him of his failure. But that didn't stop Peter. He just kept preaching. So why do we sometimes allow past failures to still haunt us? Why not live in the freedom that Christ has procured for us? Well, we may need to silence some roosters first. Booker T. Washington relates a helpful story on the day that his mother did so. Every morning of his young life, he, along with all the plantation slaves, was awakened by the crow of a rooster. At daybreak, that unwelcome noise would fill the shacks, reminding Washington and his fellow workers to crawl out of bed and leave for the cotton fields. That rooster's crow came to symbolize their dictated life of long days and back-breaking labor. 
But then came the Emancipation Proclamation. Abraham Lincoln proclaimed freedom for all the slaves. The first morning after that, young Booker was awakened by the rooster again. Only this time, his mother was chasing her around the barnyard with an axe. She caught it, and the Washington family fried and ate their alarm clock for lunch. Their first act of freedom was to silence that reminder of slavery. So I ask you this morning, are there any roosters stealing your sleep? You might need to sharpen the blade. The great news is, yes, his grace is real, and so is our freedom. The Bible says it is for freedom that he has set us free. That is our right, and that is our destiny. Let's begin to live like it. Pray with me. And Father, you are the source of our freedom. While we sometimes allow ourselves to go back into bondage when we don't have to, is beyond me, though I have done it countless times. I pray, Lord, that you would give us a fresh revelation of who we are in you. And if anyone in here does not know you or within the internet broadcast, I pray that today would be the day, Lord, that they would silence that rooster and they would come to know you in a personal and life-giving way. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.